This is Chapter 17 of the WCBS 880 Author Talks podcast. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. Coming up in this week's chapter, our Pat Farnack talks with Adam Grant, who co-authored the bestseller Option B with Sheryl Sandberg. And then we take a trip, okay, an imaginary trip, to Cape Cod for this week's beach read from Jamie Brenner. But before we can go away, we'll need a place to stay. Lee Gallagher is the assistant managing editor at Fortune and the author of the Airbnb story, How Three Ordinary Guys Disrupted an Industry, Made Billions, and Created Plenty of Controversy. She gave CEO radio host Ray Hoffman the -the behind-the-scenes story about the home-sharing startup. I don't think in a generation has there been as unlikely a success as Airbnb. It is stunning to me. I sort of knew the bones of the story before I went and researched for the book, but the the fact that this even got off the ground, let alone became what it is today, I mean, everyone thought this was a terrible idea. Uh, These three founders couldn't get anyone to take their calls, couldn't get anyone to give them money. Uh, One investor they met with literally got up halfway during the meeting and just walked out. He left his smoothie on the table. They thought he went to pay his parking meter. He just never came back. I mean, people thought this was just completely Uh, a terrible idea. Wrong on every level. Wrong on every level. People will never stay in strangers' homes. Someone's going to murder someone in one of these houses and you're going to have blood on your hands. What is wrong with people? Why do they actually do this? I mean, it was just, you know, a lot of this was, you know, older people, you know, set in their ways. I mean, me included. Uh, I talked to a hotel executive who at the, it was in his 40s at the time, and he said, he, he said what, what about the sheets? What about cleaning? Why would anyone do this? And he wasn't thinking as a millennial who wants a cheap place to stay, likes adventures, is a little bit anti-corporate, sick of conventional hospitality. You know, all this stuff was lost on all the people who were uh, there at the beginning and ha- had the chance to make a lot of money and passed. You know, there's a large part of this story that fits with the many other business enterprises that started out of economic crisis. I mean, so many businesses started in 1933, for example. But in this case, I don't get the sense that economics is even a quarter of the story, maybe only a fifth or a sixth or something, a new company coming out of the Great Recession serving this new need, but there's something more than economics. There was something more. I think initially that played a big role because it it was, when it first got started, it was only sharing a room or a space in the place while you were there. So it was much cheaper. And it was the Great Recession. So I think that was an appeal, but it's way bigger than that, as you say. I mean, it really struck a chord. Um, You know, the hospitality industry had gotten so overly commercial and overly consistent. I mean, some might say commoditized. Ernie Sorensen, the CEO of Marriott, was on stage last year, and he said, you know, 20 years ago, what the consumer wanted was if they woke up in Cairo, they still wanted to feel like they were waking up in Cleveland. You know, that's what they wanted. And so we gave that to them. But now if they wake up in Cairo, they want to feel like they're waking up in Cairo. And so Airbnb came along and offered this authentic, unique, artisanal, everyone is different. Now that can be good and bad, but it was, it was you know, it, it played into this just, you know, authentic and um, adventurous as well. Yeah. Kind of thing. It was a movement. Yeah, it's funny that Arnie Sorensen would mention Cairo because I know the Marriott people are so proud of the fact that during the, the riots that preceded the Arab Spring, they defended that hotel <laughs> and made everybody inside feel as if they were in <laughs> Cleveland. <laughs> That's funny. Let's go back now to Rhode Island, the Rhode Island School of Design. In uh, 2004, we've got a couple of guys who are involved in a design project for Con Air, mm-hmm. the maker of hair dryers, and their ideas were like totally out of the box. 
Yeah. So this was Brian Chesky, now the CEO, and Joe Gebbia, the co-founder and chief product officer. And the two of them were kindred spirits all throughout RISD. They resuscitated the sports leagues together. They got up to all kinds of crazy antics. And, but this was the first time they actually worked on a design project for school together. And it was for the, design, the company Con Air, which makes hair dryers. Uh, and every, everyone else in the group, they were pairs, paired in two, and everyone else came up with conventional ideas like a better hair dryer, you know, new appliances, ways to tweak things. And these two came up with ideas, and when they presented them, it was just completely out of the box. Like they came up with a whole new line of products, a soap, a shirt made out of soap that washed off. <laughs> I mean, that is exactly that. the way these two thought then and still think now. And so what that told them was that when the two of them get together, their ideas are bigger than everyone else's. And Joe Gebbia, in fact, played probably the most important role of anyone in this book in getting this off the ground because he said to Brian Chesky as they were leaving, he said, we're going to start a company one day and they're going to write a book about this. He says he said that. And he constantly was pestering Brian to join him in San Francisco and start a company together. And someone had told him before he went to RISD, the most important thing you have to look for when you're at RISD is someone you want to work, work for. So he had that, his antenna up the whole time, and he, he knew it was Brian, and he really had to sell Brian on doing it. And ultimately, he was successful. And that takes us to San Francisco and the stuff of legend. <laughs> Chesky comes up from L.A. and moves in. Yes. Moves in, uh, was told the rent was a thousand, but it was really eleven hundred, and he only had a thousand dollars. And Joe also could, had a problem making the rent because they had one empty room still. Their other roommate couldn't start for another month, so they had to carry his weight as well. And they needed to save this apartment because they needed, you know, they would have lost it. And so. Uh, Joe actually said, why don't we, um, you know, I have three air mattresses in my closet. Why don't, well, there's a design conference coming to town. So they, all these people were coming to town just like them, designers, industrial designers. And they said, why don't we rent out space in our apartment and we'll give them breakfast. We'll make it a whole thing. We'll make it an experience, which is important because that's one way that it's very different than other things. And uh, they thought they would get kind of hippie backpackers and they got people who were just like them and kind of all over the map. They got a father of five. They got a woman in her 30s from Boston. They had a young design grad student from Arizona. Uh, and so, and it, and it really worked. And that's what led them to think, huh, maybe this, maybe there's something here. You can watch the full interview with Lee on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash WCBS 880. And while you're there, you can also check out our interview with CBS News correspondent Jeff Pegues about his new book, Examining the Divide Between Police and Black Communities. The Forever Summer by Jamie Brenner is a novel about strong women, what it means to be family, and the secrets we keep. I spoke to her about the engaging summer read. Someone described your book as the perfect read to get you in the summer state of mind. Did you start out wanting to write a quote-unquote beach read? I did start out wanting to read, to write a beach read. Um, in the summer, I really want books that... Um, take me to a place. I can't always travel. I work a lot, but I do always want to mentally be at a beach. And I found myself reading books constantly by Ellen Hildebrand, some books by Jane Green, Nancy Thayer. And I realized if I write a summer book, I can actually spend the winter living in this headspace and have the book done for a summer release. So with this book, I intended to write a book that was escapist, not just for readers, but also for myself. For those who haven't picked up the Forever Summer yet, give us a, a little taste of what they might find. 
I'd say it's a juicy family story set in a beautiful beach town. It's the story of two young women who discover their half-sisters, and they take a road trip to Provincetown, Massachusetts, which is the absolute end of Cape Cod, to meet the grandmother they never knew that they shared. And the grandmother, her family's been living there for generations. She runs a bed and breakfast thought her days of having family under her roof were long behind her, and then these two young women essentially show up at her doorstep. And the women in your story, they're all very strong, but at the same time, that strength threatens to upend their lives because they have these secrets and also a couple of scandals that they're trying to keep hidden. Yes, it's true. Um, I've said in a few uh, talks I've given about the book that I'm really interested in, like, the idea of who we are versus uh, who we actually are and all the kind of contradictions and stresses that exist in the space between those two people. And for the women in the Forever Summer, they are strong. They're all doing a good job, essentially either being mothers or running a bed and breakfast or being attorneys. But where they've failed, in a sense, is in the emotional honesty space. And I think that happens to a lot of us, and eventually those things catch up to us and there is a time of reckoning. And that's the place where we meet the characters in the Forever Summer. And beach raids have this reputation of being fun and breezy, and the Forever Summer is, especially that whole, like, Fourth of July crazy party that happens in Provincetown. (laughs) Yeah. But your book also does tackle some really serious issues. It does. Um, It does tackle serious issues. As I've reached later life, midlife, I'd say, it's just impossible to escape um, things that happen to us or to people we love. And I think books should be pleasurable and, like I said, escapist. But for me, it helps to also wrestle with issues, either in the books that I read or the books that I write. issues of family, of letting people down, of failures in love, of accomplishing something or not accomplishing something, of disappointment. And for me, writing about other people reckoning with these things helps me deal with them in my own life. And I've really liked other authors who who do similar things. So, and dealing with something heavy in a beautiful setting to me helps take some of the sting off. So that's the balance I tried to to reach with this novel. And that leads me to my next question. Why set the story in Provincetown as opposed to another New England coastal summer place? That's a great question. I I knew the story I wanted to tell with this book, and I didn't know where I wanted to set it. And then I saw a CBS Sunday morning show segment on Provincetown. And they, you know, it's beautiful. All these beach towns are beautiful. But they interviewed the author, Michael Cunningham, who's a longtime resident, and he said some things that really struck me. He said, Provincetown is an eccentric sanctuary. He said it's one of the few places he knows of that actually prefers peculiarity. And I thought, okay, this is a perfect setting for my characters to kind of go on the emotional journey they have to go on, you know, a place where they could not just begrudgingly accept their unconventional family, but really come to embrace it. So once I heard Michael Cunningham speak, I booked a trip to Provincetown, and I found that it really was sort of a special, um, magical place. And it really did become, you know, its own character in the book. 
Yes, you definitely get that feel. It, it, it's it definitely is a character, and it, it involves all or affects everyone's lives who's there, and they're kind of drawn into it. Yeah, I think you know I I was lucky to find Provincetown because this is um, it's not my first book, but it's the first book I ever experienced um, a place that really helps the writing. Like a lot of things that happen in the story came about because of something I saw in Provincetown. For example, one of the characters in the books is a mosaic artist, which is something I never really thought of, not on my radar. But when I was in town, I noticed that a lot of the signs or even the wall work in even just a pizza place were these beautiful tile mosaics. Um, And when I came back to New York, that really stuck with me. And when something sticks with you, you know, it tends to be a sign you should maybe work it into the story. So that gave me a whole subplot that I wouldn't have had if I hadn't actually been to the town and if I hadn't seen that kind of quirk of, of their aesthetic. And I'm, I'm so glad you brought up mosaics because I was going to say, uh, you, f- you mentioned it, you have a couple of characters who, who end up partaking in the art of doing it, but what you've literally done in your story, you've created a, a mosaic. All these characters, they're pieces of the family that you've put together and they're all made of different materials. Thank you. I appreciate that. You know, I think what I've come to realize is that is sort of the way life is. And we have this expectation sometimes that things are supposed to be perfect, like look perfect or fit together perfectly. But the further you get in life, you realize it's just not realistic. And with the mosaic, you see these little pieces like a shell or a tile or a piece of um, porcelain. And separate, it looks kind of like a mess. You can't imagine how it fits together. But with the art of mosaic, you find a way to make it whole. And what I'm trying to say with the Forever Summer is our families might be messy and complicated. There might be divorce. There might be um, you know, step-siblings or adoptions or things that take adjustment, things we might not even know about till later in life, You know, people learning about family secrets. But if we can just let go of trying to analyze what is right, what's wrong, what fits, what doesn't, look at family as a whole, embrace it, you know, we'll be a lot better off and we can appreciate what we have a lot more. So can we expect your next book to be another summer beach read? My next book is definitely a summer beach read. My next three books will be summer beach reads, uh, all dealing with, you know, complicated families, maybe the the discovery of a secret, and all set in different towns. Um, I know some authors write in the same beach town every book, but I'm finding I'm really interested in picking a new town each summer, going there and exploring it, and having that shape the book, because it did work so well for me creatively with with Provincetown. I find that with each story, if I give a new town a chance, it's going to give something back to me. And it's a great way to escape to someplace new. (laughs) It really is. It really is. I've lived in New York for 20 years, and um, trust me, I need that summer change of scenery badly. Oh, I'm 100% with you on that one. (laughs) (laughs) Jamie Brenner, author of The Forever Summer, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you for having me. In option B, facing adversity, building resilience, and finding joy, Facebook executive Sheryl Sandberg and Wharton professor of psychology Adam Grant explore how to cope with loss. In Sandberg's case, it was the sudden death of her husband, Dave Goldberg. Our Pat Farnack spoke with Grant about the genesis of the book. 
But what is your connection with Sheryl Sandberg in writing Option B? Sure. So let's see, about four years ago, um, my first book, Give and Take, came out right after Lean In. And uh, Cheryl and I were, were speaking at the same event, and uh, her husband, Dave, came up to me and had read my book, and I had written about generosity, and it was so clear from the questions he asked me that he lived the kind of life I was trying to study. And um, he ended up inviting me over for dinner and saying, you know, I think you and Cheryl would really enjoy getting to know each other, which ended up being one of the, the greatest gifts that I've ever received. And uh, I remember at dinner, um, Cheryl started asking me questions about gender in my data, and I, I couldn't answer a lot of them. So I, I spent the flight back east reanalyzing 10 years of data. I uh, was horrified by some of the gender differences that I found and sent them to Cheryl, and she said, we should, we should write about this. And, and through writing together, we became friends. I was widowed myself, and uh, so Cheryl's story was especially meaningful to me. Uh, She really uh, had me experience the raw emotions and go through it all again, which I guess is is the uh, secret of great writing, right? (laughs) And um, I I really like the title because you're faced with a stark choice when you lose a spouse. You uh, can't have your option A, so you have to find a way to have an option B. Yeah, first of all, Pat, I'm, I'm so sorry for your loss. Thank you. I think, you know, for, for a lot of people, uh, especially when, when loss comes by surprise, um, there's, I mean, there's no plan, right? No one, no one knows what to do. Um, no one can fully understand what that experience is like, as, as you can attest. And I think that, you know, for, for a lot of people, there's, there's the, you know, the loss of control, feeling like, you know, I, I no longer can, can shape my life the way that I wanted to. And then there's also just this incredible isolation of people not knowing what to say, not wanting to say the wrong thing, not wanting to be confronted with reminders of their own mortality. And that silence can can make it even harder for, for people to cope. And turning the corner, you know it won't be the same, but it will be different. And you have to be, you have to get to the place where that's okay. That different option will be okay. Yeah, I think for for most people, you know, I, I I was actually really struck by this is, you know, as a psychologist, I always thought that, you know, there are basically two possibilities when something horrible happens in your life. One is that that you're broken by it. You know, you go through PTSD or debilitating depression or crippling anxiety. And then I thought resilience is about trying to bounce back and get to where you were before. And I was stunned to discover that in fact, a lot of people end up bouncing forward that, you know, they, of course, there's, you know, there's sadness and in many ways their lives are worse, but that in some ways they also describe positive changes that, you know, they feel stronger. Like if I got through this, I can get through anything or more grateful uh, knowing just how, you know, how much of a gift life is or feeling more meaning around, you know, saying, look, because of the wisdom that I've gained or, you know, the, the suffering that I've experienced, I now have new knowledge that I can share with others, and that gives me purpose. I like the part of the book where Cheryl was describing how so many people don't know what to say, how instead of just saying, anything you need, give me a call, which puts the onus on you as the griever to tell them what you want, but it's always better if they say, I'll bring you dinner, or I'll come over and do your dishes for you. Yeah, I have made this mistake (laughs) my whole life, as long as I can remember. Right, like, just please let me know if there's anything I can do. And you know, I, I thought that that was the way that you know you sort of you 
share with people that you're, you're open to helping if you can, but also, you know, acknowledging that you don't exactly know what they need. And, you know, only, only now do I, do I know that that does shift the burden to the person who's grieving or mm-hmm. suffering, not only, you know, to know what they need, but also to feel comfortable asking. Yeah. And, you know, there, there are small things that, that I think really matter. Um, Cheryl and I have a colleague, Dan Levy, who uh, very tragically lost a son. And when they were in the hospital, uh, he got a, a text from a friend saying, what do you not want on a burger? <laughs> Um, which, you know, I thought was such, an, such a beautiful way of, of giving him just a little bit of choice, but also saying, look, I'm going to do this for you. And then another person texted and said, I'm in the lobby of the hospital for a hug, and I'll be here for the next hour, whether, you know, you come downstairs or not. And I think just, you know, offering something specific is so much more helpful than just saying, you know, what, what can I do? Let me know if there's anything. <laughs> Which sort of lets yourself off the hook, doesn't you? Doesn't it, if you just are, are vague like that? Um, it I know, really does. And it's not about you. You have to think about that. It's about the other person who's grieving. What would you say to get people to pick up option B, or uh, what could you leave with us when you are in the midst of grief? One of the, the big challenges that people run into is, is they, they end up personalizing it. Um, you know, for, for Cheryl, it was first feeling responsible for not diagnosing, you know, Dave's cardiac arrhythmia. And it took her a while to realize, like, huh, the doctors didn't catch it. Like, there's, there's, why would she have been able to diagnose it? Right. Um, and then, you know, once, once she finally understood that, it was then feeling responsible for, for making other people's lives harder. I remember her calling me over and over and saying, I'm so sorry to burden you. And, you know, I had, I had to tell her, look, like you, you didn't interrupt people's lives. Tragedy did. And eventually I banned, I'm sorry. And I said, you're not allowed to say it anymore. And the next day she called me and she said, I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> no, that wasn't okay either. But I, I think one of the most important things that, for all of us to remember is that not everything that happens to us happens because of us. Oh, I like that. I like that. Well, we'll leave it there. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Bye-bye, Adam. Thanks. Bye-bye. That concludes this week's podcast. Let us know how we're doing. Email us at books at WCBS880.com and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880books.